Chapter Eighteen of Wolf the Saxon by George Alfred Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Northern Invasion. The news of Harold's marriage to Ealdgyth put an end to the demands of William of Normandy that Harold should take one of his daughters to wife, and in the complaints that he addressed to all Christendom against Harold, the breach of his promise in this respect was placed far more prominently than his failure to carry out his oath to be the duke's man. It must have been evident indeed to all that it was beyond the power of the English king to keep this oath, obtained from him by force and treachery. He had been elected by the voice of the English people, and had no more power than the meanest of his subjects to hand the crown they had bestowed to another. The breach of this oath, however, served to obtain all the aid that the church could give to William. Harold was solemnly excommunicated, and the struggle for which the duke was preparing thereupon assumed the character of a sacred war. In England itself the bull of excommunication had no effect whatever. The great bulk of bishops and clergy were Englishmen, and thought far more of their king than of any foreign prince or prelate. Even the bishops and abbots of Norman blood disregarded the commination and remained staunch to Harold. He had been a generous patron to the church, had maintained them in all the privileges and dignities that Edward had bestowed upon them, and possessed the love of the whole English people. Therefore, in spite of ban and interdict, the churches remained open. Services were held as usual and people were married and buried as if the papal bull had never been issued. But it was not so on the continent. The Norman barons, as a body, had at first refused to support the duke in an invasion of England, but as individuals they had been brought round to join William's project and to give far more aid in ships and men than they were bound to do by their feudal engagements. Having accomplished this, William issued an invitation to all adventurous spirits in Europe to join him in his crusade against the excommunicated King of England, promising that all should share alike in the plunder of England and in the division of its land. The bait was a tempting one. Some joined the enterprise merely for the sake of gaining glory under the banner of one who was regarded as the greatest military leader in Europe. Others were influenced by love of gain, while, as in the crusades, numbers joined to obtain absolution for past misdeeds, by taking part in an enterprise blessed by the Pope. Thus the force which William was collecting greatly exceeded that which the resources of Normandy alone could have set on foot. Among the first to hurry to the court of William as soon as Harold's accession to the throne was known was Tostig, in whose mind the refusal of Harold to embark in a civil war for his sake and to force him upon the people of Northumbria in spite of their detestation of him was an injury not to be forgiven. The fact that Tostig was ready thus to sacrifice England to his own private quarrel showed a baseness and recklessness that could hardly be expected from his early career. William naturally accepted the alliance, received Tostig's oath of allegiance, and aided him in fitting out a number of ships manned by Norman and Flemish adventurers. Evading the watch kept by the English fleet, they crossed the sea landed and plundered and ravaged a considerable extent of country and then retired 
tostig being enraged that william of normandy was unwilling to send an expedition to act in concert with him until the whole of his plans were prepared and a great army ready for sea normandy indeed had been converted into a vast camp in every port great numbers of workmen laboured night and day building ships for normandy had ceased to be a naval power and its shipping was utterly insufficient to carry the great army across tostig impatient and hasty thought no more of the oath of allegiance that he had sworn to william driven from yorkshire by the forces of the northern earls he sailed to scotland where he was welcomed by king malcolm both as a sworn brother and as the enemy of england from scotland he entered into negotiations with harold hadrada of norway this warlike monarch was in a fit mood to listen to his advances he had for years been engaged in a struggle with denmark which he had ineffectually attempted to conquer and had at last been forced to conclude a treaty of peace with swayen its king tostig had already endeavoured by personal persuasions to induce swayen to revive his claim to the crown of england and to undertake its conquest but he altogether declined to undertake so dangerous and difficult an enterprise and tostig had then turned to harold of norway whether his interview with him was before he went to scotland or whether he went thence to norway is a point on which historians differ some deny that any interview took place but the balance of probability lies strongly in favour of an early interview at which harold entered heartily into tostig's plans and began at once to make preparations for the enterprise it was certain that an invading force from norway would land in northumbria and harold although he might not be able to rely greatly upon the assistance of the northern earls as against the normans knew that they would do their best to defeat an expedition landing on their own shores especially when tostig was a sharer in the invasion his own thoughts were wholly bent upon repelling the mighty expedition gathering in normandy and for this purpose by immense efforts he collected the greatest army and fleet that had ever been got together in england an incessant watch was kept along the coast where the normans might be expected to land while the fleet cruised for months between the thames and the isle of wight prepared to give battle to the invaders but the conditions of service in england were such that it was impossible to keep a great force on foot for an indefinite time the house cars were the only regular portion of the army the great bulk of the force both land and sea consisting of the levies or militia whose terms of service was very limited it says much for the influence of harold that he was able for four months to keep his army and navy together had the foe appeared soldiers and sailors would have done their duty but the long-term inaction the weary waiting for a foe that never came was too much and when september arrived and the harvest was ready to be gathered it was impossible even for him to keep the men longer together the army disbanded the levies went to their homes and the ships of the fleet sailed away to the ports to which they belonged all the efforts and anxieties of harold all his lavish expenditure in feeding and providing for so great a number of men had been thrown away england lay for a time absolutely defenceless against the coming storm it was not until august that wolf had completely recovered his strength and was able to join the army this is not a time harold said to him on the day he arrived at the camp 
for the granting of dignities or the bestowal of grants but if we are successful and i remain king of england the services you have rendered me at the risk of your life wolf shall be worthily rewarded i need no reward wolf replied my estates are sufficient for all my needs and i desire neither land nor dignity being more than content that i have been enabled to render a service to you in england wolf was however at once appointed as commander of the whole of the housecarls supplied by the thanes of the south coast of sussex none of these bodies were equal in strength to his own carefully prepared contingent few of the thanes having kept up more than fifteen or twenty men constantly under arms and these only for the past few months in consequence of harold's exhortations altogether the force amounted to about four hundred men each party had its own sub-officer and wolf did his best to weld them into one body when the army broke up he returned with the king to westminster the day after he arrived there a man met him as he issued from the palace and handed him a letter it contained but the words i would fain see you if you follow the bearer he will bring you to me say naught to any one of this message edith is the distance far he asked the man it is to croydon my lord i have ridden here on horseback wolf at once ordered his horse to be brought to him will you be back to-night my lord osgod asked as he mounted in case the king should wish to see you i shall not be back till late possibly not until to-morrow i do not tell you where i am going in order that if you are asked you may be able to truly reply that i said nothing before i mounted as to my destination it was just midday when wolf drew up his horse before a modest house standing in a secluded position a quarter of a mile from the village of croydon edith met him at the doorway i thank you wolf for answering my request so speedily there is much that i would ask you about my lord i hear of him only by general report for although from time to time i send him messages i give him no opportunity for writing to me and i know that he has respected my wishes and has caused no search to be made for me harold sometimes speaks to me of you lady and has in no way forgotten you he did charge me to find out if i could the place of your abode not that he would seek an interview with you but should there be need he might be able to send a message by this time they were seated in the room where edith spent the greater part of her time it is better that we should not meet she said earnestly his mission is to work and to fight for england mine to remain apart from all men and to spend my time in prayers for him i know that he places great confidence in you as indeed he well may for i have heard how you have saved his life well nigh at the expense of your own is he happy with his new queen his thoughts at present lady are altogether turned to public affairs and it is well perhaps that it should be so i do not think that he receives much sympathy from the queen who cares more i should say for her brothers the northern earls than for her husband it is a scarce wonder that it should be so edith replied though it seems strange to me that any woman could live with harold without loving him with all her heart and yet she may well feel that she like harold has been sacrificed there was no shadow of love between them before their marriage in fact she may have even hated him for it was he who brought ruin and death upon her husband the welsh king she must know that he only married her in order to gain the firm alliance of her brothers and that a hand was given by them to harold without any reference to her feelings 
I would that the king were happy, even though it were with another. But it was not for his happiness that I left him, but that England might be won. Is it true that the army is broken up and the fleet scattered? It is true, lady, save for three, four thousand housecarls, there is not an armed man in readiness to defend England. It must be a terrible trial to him. It is, my lady. He returned to town yesterday, dispirited and cast down at the failure of the work of months. Still they will reassemble rapidly, she said, when the Normans really come. Doubtless they will, but the loss of the fleet is greater than that of the army. For at sea we could have met and almost assuredly have conquered them, for the Normans are no match for our sailors, whereas to meet so great an army of trained soldiers, with hastily assembled levies, is to fight under every disadvantage. And is the rumour true which says that Tostig and Harold of Norway are also preparing for an invasion? All reports that come to us through Denmark are to that effect. It's enough to make the stones cry out, Edith said indignantly, that a son of Godwin should thus betray England. I never thought it of him. He was headstrong and passionate, yet as a young man he was loved almost as much as Harold himself. Nay, some loved him more. But it was not on account of public affairs that I brought you here, but to talk of Harold. I know naught of his daily doings, of his thoughts or his troubles. Tell me all you can of him, Wolf. For a long time they talked of the king. She had from the first been drawn towards Wolf by seeing how he loved Harold, and as they talked her tears often fell. I am proud of him, she said at last, more proud of him than when he was the light of my life. My sacrifice has not been in vain. He is what I would have him, one whose thoughts are all fixed upon his country, who gives all his energy, all his wisdom, all his time to her service. Humbler men can be happy, but a king has higher duties than others, and for him love and marriage, wife and children, the joys of the peasant, must be altogether secondary. The good of his country, the happiness and welfare of tens of thousands are in his hands, and if in these respects he acts worthily, if he gains the blessings of his people, he can afford to do without the home joys that are so much to lesser men. You are sure that he is not unhappy? If I did but know this, I would be content. I do not think he is unhappy, Wolf said confidently. He has the applause and love of all men, and the knowledge that all his work is for the good of his country and his people. He may have regrets, but he has little time to spend upon them when he has in hand so vast a work upon which night and day his every thought is directed. I suppose you wish to get back to-night, Wolf. I should greatly prefer it, he said, and I would rather that you did not remain here. It may seem inhospitable, but I feel it would be better so. No one here knows who I am, and at first my servants were plied with questions whenever they went abroad. But the wonder has died away, and the villagers have come to believe that I am, as I gave out, the widow of a court official. Should it be known that a young thane stayed here the night, it would set them gossiping afresh. Stay and sup with me before you start. Am I to tell the king I have seen you? he asked. What think you yourself, Wolf? I'm sure that he would be glad to know. I need not say where you are living. I will say that you have charged me to keep it secret and he will forbear questioning me. But I am sure that it will give him deep pleasure to know that I have seen you, 
to learn how you look how you are living how you occupy yourself and how you think of him it cannot but be a trial to him to know nothing of the one he so loves more than once he has told me that he wondered whether you had entered a convent whether you were in health how you bore yourself and other matters tell him then wolf you can tell him that great has been my grief over our separation i can yet feel happy in my solitude in knowing how nobly he is doing his kingly work and that i have never wavered in my assurance that i was right when i bade him to go tell him that i have no thought of entering a cloister that i have my old servants and my garden and needlework that i spend much of my time in ministering to my poorer neighbours and that i am getting to be loved by them say that my health is good and that i have every comfort i need save his presence tell him that if i fall ill and the leeches say that i shall die i shall send for him to see me once again but that in such a manner only will we meet in this life and that it is my prayer that he will not seek to alter my resolution for that the pain of parting again would be more than the joy of seeing him he is another woman's now and that by my act therefore it would be a grievous sin for us loving each other as we do to meet again unless he or i was on a deathbed the supper was served early and when it was eaten wolf's horse was brought round to the door am i to come again he asked she did not answer for a time not unless i send for you wolf our meeting has given me much pleasure and i shall be the happier for it but for a time our talk of the past and present will unsettle me and stir up afresh regrets and longings therefore it were best that you come not again until i send for you the darkness was just closing in when wolf rode into westminster the king has twice asked for you my lord osgod said as he alighted the last time a quarter of an hour since wolf at once went to the king's closet where he was at work with two or three secretaries to whom he was dictating i want you wolf the king said as he entered where hast been wolf glanced at the secretaries and harold bade them retire till he summoned them again wolf then related at length his interview with edith harold listened in silence i am right glad at your news he said when the latter had finished it is just what i thought she would do her words are lofty and wise truly a king can little hope for happiness such as that which is in the reach of the humblest of his subjects but we will talk of this again for the present i must think of public business news has been brought to me by a sure hand from denmark that the fleet of norway has sailed tis said that harold has called out a levy of half the fighting men of his kingdom and that he has five hundred warships besides transports his son magnus has been left behind to rule norway with the title of king harold intends to conquer england and reign here i must lose no moment in sending the news to the northern earls doubtless it is on their coast he will first land there was no one i would sooner trust than yourself and you shall be my messenger i have the letters written to them warning them that every man capable of bearing arms should be summoned to their standard and every preparation made to repulse the foe of help at present i can give them none my army is dispersed my shores undefended and at any moment william's fleet may appear off the coast let them meet the norwegians while i meet the normans it is for you to press upon them the counsels i give in my letters and i would that you should remain with them 
sending messages to me from time to time, giving me full tidings of what takes place at York, and how they fare in their struggle with Harold of Norway, and, as I fear, with my brother Tostig. They met you at Northampton, and they know the confidence I place in you and the services you rendered in the Welsh campaign. However, although they may receive you well, I fear that your counsel will go for naught. They are haughty and headstrong, and assuredly they will not be guided by one of my thanes. Do not therefore press the matter with them, or risk incurring their anger. I want you to stand well with them, for so only can you learn their views and keep me informed of what is doing. Being assured that you would undertake the duty, I have highly commended you to them as my representative at York, and I doubt not that you will be well received. Brothers-in-law, though they are, I can count on but little aid from them in our struggle with the Normans. But there they will be fighting for their own earldoms, and will do their best, though I fear the result, for they have been deaf to my entreaties to keep an army on foot, and the hurried levies of the north will scarce stand against the mighty army Harold Hadrada is bringing against them. I will start immediately, my lord. Here is a royal order upon all governors and thanes to give you changes of horse and to aid you in all ways. Take that giant of yours with you. He is a faithful fellow, and is not wanting in sense. You will find him of great use there. You will, of course, accompany the earls to the field. Watch well how the levies fight. It is long since they have been called upon to meet a foe and I would fain know how much they can be trusted on the day of battle. As your own horse has travelled to-day, take two of my best. Here is an order to the head of the stables to deliver them to you. Is there aught else I can do for you? Nothing, my lord. I understand your wishes, and will follow them as closely as I can. Do not expose yourself too much on the field of battle, Wolf. I cannot spare you, and therefore charge you not to be rash, and if matters go ill, to provide for your safety as far as you may. Wolf found Osgod awaiting him in the hall below. I thought you might require me, master, so I waited till you had seen the king. You did well, Osgod. I am starting on a journey to York, and you are to accompany me. We ride armed, so get your coat of mail and take your favourite axe. Then carry this order to the stables, and tell them to have the two horses ready at the gates in half an hour's time. Then go to the kitchen and eat a hearty meal, and put some bread and cold meat in a wallet. We shall ride fast with few stoppages, for I have the royal order for a change of horses everywhere. That's good news, my lord. After dawdling away the last four months doing nothing, I am glad to hear there is a chance of striking a strong blow on someone. Though who it is, I know not. Now go, Osgod. I have also to change my clothes and drink a horn of ale and eat something. Though I supped but three hours since, put my gayest suit in the saddle-bag for I may stay some time at York, and must make a fair show, going as I do as Harold's messenger. The journey was accomplished at an extraordinary rate of speed, Harold's order procuring them a change of horses whenever they stopped, and they but once halted for a few hours' sleep. Wolf found that Edwin and Morcar were both at York, and alighted at the gate of their residence. Announcing himself as a messenger from the king, he was at once conducted to their presence. "'It's Wolf of Staining, is it not?' Edwin said courteously. "'The message must be urgent indeed, since Harold has chosen you to carry it. When did you leave him?' "'I left Westminster at nine o'clock of the evening of Tuesday. 
and it is now but midday on thursday the earl said in a tone of astonishment you have ridden nigh two hundred miles in less than forty hours the roads are good my lord and i had the king's order for changes of horses whenever i needed i slept six hours at northampton but have ridden without other stop save to take meals i know that the message i bore was of importance as you will see by the king's letter edwin opened the letter and laid it before morcar and the two read it together this is serious news indeed edwin said when they had perused it so harold of norway is on his way hither with five hundred warships and half the males of norway since the news has come from denmark he must already have been nigh a fortnight at sea and if he had sailed hitherwards we should have long ere this of his being within sight of our shores as we have heard naught of him it may be that his object has been misreported and that it is not against us that the fleet is bound i fear that it can have no other destination wulf said though it may be that it has sailed first to scotland to obtain assistance from malcolm there too he will find tostig whom the king fears is in alliance with him then assuredly it is against us that he comes morcar said and unless the wind shatter his fleet we shall hear of him before long but he may land anywhere from the border of scotland to the humber and it is useless our trying to hinder him along so great a line he may delay his coming as william of normandy has done and our men like those of harold will not remain under arms for months doing nothing with so great an army he must move slowly and we shall have plenty of time to gather our forces to meet him harold urges us to call out the levies at once but he does not know the northumbrians as we do they will fight and stoutly but they will scatter as soon as their term expires it is but six weeks since we called them under arms to repulse tostig and unless they themselves see the danger presses they will not leave their homes again after so short an interval i am glad to see by the king's letter that he has charged you to stay with us for a while we shall be glad of your presence both as the agent of our royal brother and as one who has already proved himself a valiant and skilful soldier apartments were at once assigned to wolf in the palace and he was treated as an honoured guest he had been furnished by the royal chamberlain with an ample sum of money and every two or three days dispatched messengers to london he was greatly disturbed in mind for the earls made no preparation whatever to meet the coming storm but continued to hunt or hawk to give entertainments and to pass their time as if the news of a mighty invasion had never reached them the first attempts he made to urge them to follow harold's counsel were dismissed so curtly that he felt it useless to persevere a fortnight passed by and then a messenger rode into york with the news that a vast fleet had entered the tyne and that the norsemen were harrying and burning the country harold hadrada had first sailed to the isles of shetland and orkney which with the northern districts of the mainland formed a powerful scandinavian province paul and ernig the two young earls of the state and a large number of their subjects joined the fleet as did a scotch contingent sent by malcolm and commanded by tostig who also had with him the force he had brought from flanders iceland then a great norwegian colony sent ships and men as did an irish sovereign of danish descent roused to action at last the northern earls sent out a summons in all directions for the levies to assemble the invaders were next heard of at scarborough 
which made a brave resistance but the norsemen took post on the steep hill overhanging the town and gathering there a vast pile of wood set it on fire and hurled the blazing timbers down on the place many of the houses caught fire and this spread rapidly the inhabitants surrendered but the greater portion was slaughtered and the town given up to plunder holderness like scarborough bravely but unsuccessfully resisted the attack and the great fleet sailing south entered the humber hour by hour messengers rode into york bringing the news of the progress of the invaders hour by hour the northumbrian levies poured into the capital much as he had disapproved of their previous carelessness and delay wulf acknowledged that the two northern earls now bore themselves as men they saw to the defences of the town mustered all the inhabitants capable of bearing arms arranged for the feeding and disposition of the levies and did all that was possible at so short a notice to get them to take the field but he saw too that this raw militia was but little calculated to stand before an assault of the norsemen there was no body of seasoned troops like the house carls to serve as a nucleus and to bear the chief brunt of the battle all alike were raw inexperienced and badly armed save for the axe which was the favourite weapon of the english the great fleet made no stay but sailed up the humber packing closely in the river as it narrowed till it seemed well nigh covered from shore to shore with the crowded ships it passed the little village of selby cast anchor beside the left bank of the ouse near the village of rickle but nine miles march from york olaf the king's son the two earls of orkney and the bishop of those islands remained on board to guard the ships for the northumbrian fleet which was far too small to encounter so great an armament had taken refuge up the wharf and might descend and attack the norse vessels were they left unguarded the main body of the great army under the king and tostig landed and prepared to march upon york sudden as the call had been there was no lack of spirit or patriotism in the english levies among their ranks were many priests and monks who felt that it was their duty to aid in the defence of the land against the semi-heathen host that invaded it the memory of the past invasion of the norsemen when the churches had been sacked and the priests slain on the altar inspired them and they and the monks responded as readily as did the laymen to the summons of the earls these had not hesitated to consult wolf as to the post where they had best stationed themselves to give battle and the disposition of their forces one who had distinguished himself under duke william of normandy and under harold in wales had young though he was more experience of war than any of the northern thanes and as the representative of harold all these were ready to listen with respect to his advice he had already spent four or five days in surveying the ground in the direction from which the norsemen were likely to advance and had decided that a place known as gate fulford two miles from the city was best calculated for defence it being situated on a narrow ridge having the river and its swampy banks on one side and a flat marshy country on the other thither the army of the earls marched to take up its position End of chapter eighteen